Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event. Are you ready? Let's get ready to ramp up your sales. And now the man you've been waiting for, he is the real thriller in Manila. The undisputed, undefeated, reigning, defending, pound for pound, heavyweight, John, the sales machine, Franken. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is a force to be reckoned with. Recognized by Salesforce as one of the game-changing sales influencers of 2022, top voice on LinkedIn, and by the way, he's got 398,000 followers. He's one of the best sales trainers in the world, according to Drift, and Forbes have named him the top 30 social salespeople in the world. He is the CEO of JB Sales, which provides top-notch sales trainings for companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, Amazon, SalesLoft, and many more. He's a highly sought-after advisor who sits on the board of several fast-growing technology companies today. And get this, he's worked with the legend, Jack Welsh. I mean, he spent three months directly with him, building his online university, sorting things out to scale that, the number one CEO of all time. He is a legend in the making himself. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome him to the show, John Burroughs. Hey, John, you make me sound a lot more important than I actually am, but I appreciate it, man. I've, I've, uh, I've had some fortunate uh, things fall in my lap over the course of the years and had some cool experiences. So I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. and I'm looking forward to talking to you in the audience here. Yeah, well, anybody who's been in sales for more than 25 years and <laughs> helped so many different companies, man, I know that we're cut from the same cloth. My psychology of sales is more of like a Zig Ziglar uh, and that's all about giving, right? Giving, you sh shall receive service, solve problems, make sure they're satisfied. You're doing that for companies all over the world at the highest level. So much respect, my friend. Thanks, man. Yeah, we have a similar, we have a similar mentality. I tell people this all the time that if, <clears throat> if you're trying to convince anybody in sales, I think you're doing it wrong. You know, this is, this is profession is about helping people solve problems or achieve goals. That's it. And if you're trying to convince me to do something, I think you're missing the mark. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a story about the first thing you've ever sold. <laughs> yeah, I, well, the first thing I actually sold, uh, I think it was when I was probably about eight or nine years old. Um, I was, you know, I was, my mom's an artist. So my dad's an engineer, my mom's an artist. And so I got kind of both sides there, the science and the art. And the art side of the house, I was decent as a kid. And you know, those little tiny pumpkins that come around with, with, you know, during Halloween or whatever it is, the small ones. Um, so I would, I would buy those for whatever, you know, a buck at the, at the store. And then I would paint faces on them because I could draw like little cartoons and, you know, paint eyeballs and stuff like that. And I would bring them to school and I'd sell them for five bucks. So I bought it for a buck, sell it for five. Uh, and I'm making a decent amount of money doing it when I was like about nine years old. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that was kind of my first and, and I think it was because I wanted, uh, and you'll remember this, uh, you know, uh, the, the original Atari, uh, <laughs> this is I, exactly. So the original Atari that was like, Oh, and this is actually to this day, this is why I do not play uh, video games 
is because I worked my ass off to, to get a hundred bucks. So I, I, I earned a hundred dollars selling these little things. So I, and, you know, washing cars and everything else too. And I was so proud of myself and I, and I went and bought the Atari, right? Like the original Atari. And I was so excited to use it. And literally, I, I remember the commercial to this day, the day after I bought it, they released the under 50 bucks. Like, so they dropped the price from 100 down to 50. And they did this whole campaign around under 50 bucks, 50 bucks. Isn't that nice, right? And I remember being so pissed off that I had worked so hard to earn $100. And now it was only 50 bucks the day after that I, I effectively threw it away. And I never looked back to video games ever again. So... Yeah, I remember playing. There's one button and a joystick. Yep. Joystick and a get. button, man. That you get it. one button, right? Yep. And that today's Xbox, they've got all these different oh, buttons. And yeah, uh, you Pitfall and all those original games. And yeah, that was that yeah. was. The, but I got bitter on it because I, I was so mad that I worked so hard and then I could get it for half as much. I, I just couldn't let that go. <laughs> Great story. I, I grew up mowing lawns and, and I was a paper boy. I did free offers as a of, as a paper boy before there was internet just so people would sign up for subscriptions because i wanted to win a boat and there guess what <laughs> nice i want a boat <laughs> I, nice. a boat, yeah, yeah. Talkies. I was a motivated little guy man and i love to sell my brother pushed me right my older brother because you know everybody knew us in a in a small town of five thousand, and uh you know, even the the other high school kids, and we were going door to door to mow lawns and stuff. And so he pushed me up there. You go, you go, you go, right? He'll, he'll he would fine with doing the work, but he didn't want all the other school kids, you know, like giving a shit, right? So I was the younger guy, and he says, but it was a great gift that he gave me because I became fearless to just knock on a door and say, "Hey, how you doing? Your your lawn really is challenged." Door to door sales is is the purest form, in my opinion, right? I, that's why even to this day, when when door to door sales reps come to my house, I open the door, and I'll talk to them. I won't, I ain't gonna buy what they got, but I'm like, hey, like I gotta give you a ton of credit for going on and literally getting doors slammed in your face. Uh, I did that with my daughter. We we actually, I wrote a book called "I Want to Be in Sales" when I grow up with my daughter, and um, it's a children's book, and it's her journey on selling Girl Scout cookies. And actually, if you go to the website, I want to be in sales when I grow up dot com, you'll see, um, and it, it was practicing uh so we practiced her pitch we practiced objection handling and then we went door to door and selling door to and and here in boston in february that's when the girl scout cookies come out so it's freezing ass cold in february and my daughter's out there doing door to door knocking on doors and i would not help her out i was like nope you go up on that door you knock on that door you try to get that person's attention this is how you handle objections and at eight years old she she was pretty damn good so she was the number one cookie seller in the town for the past for for like two years in a row so oh, i'm definitely gonna get that book for my boy sky i i registered door to door superman.com and I'm putting that in, in comic book form about all the different challenges. I just wrote a manual and I'm turning it into a whiteboard video. It's called the seven superpowers of building championship sales teams. And it's really the psychology and methodology to do it from awareness uh, to accountability, acknowledge, accept, adjust, align. Um, and then of course, appreciate, right? Those are the seven superpowers for sustaining and scaling sales teams. And, you know, it's so simple, but so powerful. And I love that approach of how you promote things on your website and on LinkedIn. 
So tell me, how did you get involved in corporate sales? Tell me about your journey. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, I fell into sales just like everybody else, even though I liked, I love selling. I didn't really consider it a profession, obviously, right? Because back when we were going to universities, there was no major in sales, right? It's, and still to this day, it's the default profession in a lot of ways. Um, I think here in the States, we get about, I think there's about 200 colleges now that you can actually get your, your university degree in sales. But back then there wasn't. And so I went to school with, for marketing, right? Because art and whatever. I mean, well, I'll take that back. My first major was art. I realized I was not going to make any money doing that. Then I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll be an engineer because my dad's an engineer. Nope, nope. Calculus is not my friend, right? So ultimately, I ended up with marketing. And when I got out into the real world and started looking for jobs, I, I didn't like what I saw. Uh, you know, every job I saw was, you know, getting paid not as much as I wanted to get paid. And it was like, you had to be the assistant to the assistant to the assistant, and wait two years to get your 2.5% merit raise and go from there. And that just didn't jive with me. Like I'm always, I've always been a pay for performance. If I'm going to work harder, I should get paid more period. That's my whole mentality has always been. And so like as a waiter, when I was a kid and I out hustled everybody and got way, paid way more than everybody else. And so I just liked the effort in effort out. Right. But uh, the, thankfully, um, DeWalt, so um, Black & Decker owns DeWalt Power Tools. And, De, and Black and & Decker is right, in, it, right next to the University of Maryland. So they, ha they heavily recruit out of the University of Maryland when I went to school. And they were hiring for this, this swarm team job, which was under the realm of sales, but it was really event marketing. So my job was to literally drive around in a Dodge Ram pickup truck and give away free tools to construction workers. That was my job. Right. So it was pretty badass. But I mean, I was working 17 hours a day driving all over the northeast of the United States here. And um, and then about six months in, I got promoted to, to run the Home Depot team uh, here in Boston. And that was a little bit more sales because, I, you know, Home Depot obviously had to buy DeWalt. But they, you know, instead of making it a $10,000 order, I had to make it a $50,000 order. Right. So sell throughs and end caps and all that stuff. So that was a little bit more sales. And then after that, about a year and a half into DeWalt, um, I ended up leaving DeWalt and going to Xerox. <clears throat> That's where I got my formal sales education. Uh, Xerox was well known at the time for one of their, you know, they had an eight week sales training program, one of the top in the industry. Um, and so I, so not only was I selling copiers, I was selling copiers to the government. So about as bad as it got, like, I mean, that's where I learned how to take rejection, how to, you know, solution selling, relationship sales, all that stuff. And that was probably, I would consider that my MBA. That was my MBA in sales. Um, and then from there, I didn't like the corporate world. Something just didn't feel right about corporate America to me. Cause I just didn't like, again, being put in a box and told what to do. And so <clears throat> a buddy of mine started a company uh, so a buddy of mine from high school started a company doing outsourced IT services to the SMB market. So companies under 200 employees, we manage their infrastructure, servers, workstations, backup security and everything, right? And I was 23. So, and we were self-funded by the way. So we had no money and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I took every training I could. I took Sandler, Miller, Hyman, Taz, Spin, you name it. I was taking these trainings just to try to figure out what the hell to do. And I came across this one company called Basho. And it was a local company here in Boston, training company. And I loved the training. It was because the, the, um, it, it wasn't this big theory about sales. It was, it was, it was tactical. It was like, Hey, here's how to send an email, send an email, right? Here's to make a phone call, make a phone call. And so I used it to help grow thrive up. We ended up being the fastest growing company in Massachusetts for a few years in a row, got us to about 85 employees and about 12 million in revenue. And then we sold to Staples. So Staples came and bought us, spent about what a year going through that. that? In a, what's that? What company was that? 
The first company was Thrive. It was called Thrive Networks. And Thrive Networks is now currently Thrive is the largest uh, MSP in the country. So it's the largest ma uh, managed service provider in the country at this point, but it's been rolled over to other private equities and everything else. Right on. Um, and you built that to 85 employees. How many of mm -hmm. those were salespeople? So uh, we had six or seven at the same time at, at a point. It was mostly engineers, professional services oriented with a managed service spin to it. It was pure hand-to-hand -hand combat, SMB sales, you know, going out, driving all over Massachusetts, you know, two, $3,000 a month to manage your infrastructure. That's what we were selling. That's fantastic. And when you were in that situation, right, what turned you and your partner on to, okay, we've built this, we built it to 85 employees, things are happening. What was the goal of selling it? Like, was it a conscious goal? Were you approached? How did that all work out? Yeah. So it was, it was weird. So we had, so the, the three founders, two of them were good friends of mine and one of them wasn't, I was the fourth person on board. So I was, I was not a majority shareholder. Right. So we had kind of figured out the model. Like I had, I had actually created the predictable revenue model before it was actually predictable revenue of the segmentation of roles and everything else. And so we had created this model that worked like, and it was scaling and it was, and so I was quite frankly, I was a little bored. Like, cause I had kind of figured this model out and it was working. And so I, for me, I was like, ah, what's next? So I was contemplating maybe figuring something else out. But then my CTO, who's my good friend, he left years earlier. The other two guys kept, um, kept the company. And then we hired a director of business development and he ended up being our CEO cause our old, uh, the other CEO we had to push out cause he was just getting in our way. He was great up until a point, but then he just got in our way. And we unfortunately as a management team had to go to him and say, look, it's either you or us. Like if, if, if you stay, like, you're not going to have a company, keep your equity, keep everything. Just please get the fuck out of our way so we can do this the right way. Right? So we fired him and my director of business development became our CEO. And he's one of those guys who is just really good at making connections. And he was at a bar one day and we had no like, hey, we're, we did get a, a we did get a group to kind of shop us around to see what was out there. But ultimately what happened was he was at a networking event and he bumped into an executive over at Staples. They started shooting the shit, started talking about a partnership. And then kind of halfway through the conversation, he's like, well, if you guys really want to go in this direction from a tech standpoint and everything, like, why don't you just buy us? Like, we're a rounding error for you guys. Like we were... $12 million. You know what I mean? Like for Staples, a $20 billion at the time, $20 billion organization. We were, we were right off. You know what I mean? So my CEO just kind of put it out there. He's like, why don't you guys buy us? And one thing led to another. They, they acquired us and, and there we were. So. Right on. Well, congrats on that. And then from Thrive, where'd you go? I was excited about the acquisition because again, it was something new for me. So now I'm, you know, I'm the guy who's the point person to integrate my little $10 million company into a $20 billion organization. This is cool, right? And Oof. And I, and I ran, when I was at Xerox, I didn't, something didn't feel right about me being in corporate America. Right. And I, and I didn't know what it was. Both my parents were entrepreneurs, even though they didn't call it back then. So I had the entrepreneurial gene. I just didn't know it. And so when I was at Thrive, I was like, oh, this is exactly, I love this. Right. And then when I got into Staples, I was like, oh, cool. Right. But I was back in a corporate and it was almost like an allergic reaction. Like I just didn't fit. And I, I tried to fit in for like six months. I tried to do what I was supposed to do. I was like, I was going overboard with my team doing everything that way over exceeding what the expectations were, but they weren't doing anything. And so our results obviously weren't where they needed to be. And I was getting the blame for it. And I'm not an excuse guy in any stretch. So I will take, I will take all of the blame, right? But after a certain point when it's blatantly obvious, you're not doing shit on your end, 
I'm eventually going to say something. So I remember six months in, I went from being very optimistic and we're going to do this to being extremely pessimistic. And I started burning the house down effectively. I started calling people out and calling bullshit and, you know, whatever. And, and basically that doesn't work in the corporate culture. Yeah. And, and I know like, you know, my joke with Staples is they invented red tape. So I knew I wasn't ever going to get like immediately fired, but I did enough where eventually they offered me another position, which in corporate America is a nice way of firing you. And so I got fired. I didn't think of a plan B. You know, I was all in, like I, I was literally all in. And for seven years I had had my head down and I was building this company and doing what I love to do. And so when I got fired, I was, I'm sitting there like, shit, like what's my next like, what do I need to do here? Like, am I an IT sales guy? Is that what I am? I'm like, I don't even like computers. Like, I, like they, like I, they bother me, really. It's that Atari effect. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and my wife is the one who actually helped me out with this. She's like, well, let's, let's take a step back. She's like, let's look at your career and find out why were you one of the top reps in every job you've had so far? She's like, let's look at DeWalt. She goes, why were you the top rep at DeWalt? And I was like, I don't know. DeWalt cool, power tools are pretty depth pretty badass. I'm like, they're pretty cool. I, I like selling them. Right. She was like, okay. She goes, well, Xerox, she goes, why were you the best, you know, rep at Xerox? And I was like, oh, cause Xerox is the best copier out there. Like it just, you know, it was pretty easy to represent the brand that I believed in. Right. And she's like, okay, then why was thrive the fastest growing company in Massachusetts? And why did you beat out all your competition? I was like, oh, it was cause we were the best at what we did. And I believed in the, and so it, you know, what it realized was that it didn't matter what I sold. It mattered that I believed in what I sold. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, now it doesn't matter. It just, I need to go find stuff that I can believe in. And I tell people this all the time, that sales is the transfer of enthusiasm. If you do not believe in, right? If you do not believe in what you sell, then you're a douchebag sales rep who's given us all a bad name. But if you believe in what you sell, if you genuinely believe in what you sell and it makes the difference for the right person, not for everybody, but for the right person, then sales is just the transfer of enthusiasm. The first person you've got to sell is you. You've got to sell yourself on whatever it is you're selling. And if you're not enthusiastic about what you're selling, why would anybody else be enthusiastic about what you have if you have not yet fallen in love with your value proposition, whether it's a product or service. So I love that, right? Because ultimately the first person you got to sell on anything and everything, including your future is yourself. Otherwise when in doubt, they're out all the time. You never get a second chance to make a first impression right? That old head and shoulders commercial. And I used to use that in my training. And uh, today you don't even get a second chance to make a first impression or a first chance to make a first impression because the world is in the know. Before you even got on this podcast, before I got you on this podcast, before I do business with anybody, Everyone is vested. We checked out their LinkedIn. We checked out their websites. We checked out Google. We Google them, find out who they are, their social media. Like you don't even get a first chance to make a first impression unless you've done it before the people meet you. Like the game has changed. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So I love your evolution. You had this awareness because you got a good woman and shout out to your wife. 
A little bit. So I actually joined. So I started looking around and, and again, you know, I had been out of the job market forever, so I didn't even know what was an option. And I had given like, so the, the training bash show that I had taken, I had actually introduced a couple of my other sales friends and leaders to the program. Cause I thought it was so good. And one of them was a recruiter and my good friend, Patty, I sat down with her. I'm like, Patty, I'm, I'm a little nervous here. I, I've been out of the game for a while. So, you know, what's out there? What, what are good, you know, opportunities? And she's like, well, you know, there's this and there's that. She's like, but, uh, but Basho's hiring. Like the sales training, you don't you remember the training company that you, you introduced me to? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, they're hiring. You should check them out. I was like, huh. Like I never, never really thought of myself as a trainer, right? You know, because again, my, my perception of trainers up until that point was not good because most sales trainers are either failed sales professionals or professional presenters. We've all been there where we could see we were taking a training from some guy who's wearing a suit that's three sizes too big and doing a role play that would never happen in the real world. And he probably has never actually sold shit, but he's just really good at, at telling people what to do. And to me, if you haven't sold, I can't, I can't listen to you. So, you know, so for me, I had a really negative perception. And I won't listen. Exactly. But the guy who I had taken the Basho training from was a pure sales professional. And I could tell he's one of the best presenters, but also you, he just oozed like sales in all the right ways, not this sleazy gross ways. So I was like, huh? So I was like, ah, screw it. So I interviewed with the VP of sales. And I remember I, I asked my mom, my mom's a career counselor, or she was a career counselor. I have a Myers-Briggs since I was like five. And I, I remember asking her, I was like, hey, ma, I got this interesting opportunity, right? To, to potentially be a sales trainer for this company that I really love the sales training. And I, I don't know, I'd love your feedback on it. And she starts laughing and she goes, uh, and she, she's the only one who calls me John Michael, my middle name. Um, she goes, John Michael. She's like, I never wanted to tell you what to do with your career. She's like, I always wanted you to figure it out on your own. Go, but if there's one person that I thought would be great at teaching and training, it's you. And I was like, huh, really? She goes, yeah. And so I remember I had to present, I had to, I had to do a presentation on something to the group as part of the, as part of the interview. And I had never presented a training to anybody. So they, and they didn't give me any guidance, pick something, train us on it. I was like, oh shit. Right. So I, I remember went to Barnes and Noble. I picked up training for dummies and I opened up and on the first page, it says like how you cut out, you know, whether or not, you know, you're cut out to be a trainer. And there was like 10 characteristics there. And when I tell you, John, every single one of them was spot on for what I like to do. I was like, holy shit, apparently I'm supposed to be a trainer, right? And so, and so because I loved the training and it was sales. So the, the thing with their model was interesting. It, you, you weren't just a trainer. You actually had to sell so you could train. And that's what I loved. I'm good at training, but my passion sales. And so if you told me I could just be a trainer, I, I, wouldn't, I would never take the job. But if you tell me I have to sell so I can train, I'm all in, right? So took the job, ended up being one of the top reps there, uh, took on some bigger accounts, brought on some bigger ones. And then in about, in ben, then 2008 happens. New CEO came in, told us, basically followed us. It was about 20 of us. One day walked in and he's like, all right, that's it. Party's over. And we're like, oh, like, all right. You know, we knew that things were going bad, but he wants to transition here, like a month or two or something like that. He's like, I don't think you heard me. Here's a box, here's a check, pack your shit and get out. We were like, like today, They're like right now, get out of my fucking office. And it was like, whoa, okay. So I remember running down and cashing that check to make sure that I actually had the money. And I walked back to his office and I've always said like, I'm not the smartest cat out there by any stretch, right? But I'm definitely an opportunist. 
And so, and I think my skill is I can kind of take a look at things and put two or three data points together without overanalyzing and say, yep, this makes sense without, you know, overanalyzing. So everybody else was stuck in this, oh man, like it was almost like a zombie land. People are just walking around, oh, I got to get a job and healthcare and all this other stuff. And I'm like, that guy just walked away from what used to be a $3 million business with an insane client list, a product that everybody loves and then a revenue stream that was already there. Because back then, like Gartner, Forrester, these were all customers of ours. And they would sign two, three, $400,000 contracts. And it was a 50% deposit, 50% receivable. So we had all these deposits from all these big clients. And I knew he wasn't going to give them their money back. And he had just fired all the trainers, right? Because he, he actually went all in on the software. And so I walked into his office and I was like, okay, that sucks um, that you fired us all. Uh, thanks. Just out of curiosity, though, like, what are you going to do with the training? And he was, and no joke, he looked at me and he goes, hmm, oh yeah, I, I don't, what do you think I should do with it? I was like, what? You haven't thought this through? I was like, uh, well, how about this? How about uh, I start a, 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 another company as a reseller of the training stuff? I'll go deliver on all that training that, that you've already committed to. You keep the deposits, I'll keep the receivables. And then after that, I'll pay your residual uh, and then we'll go from there. How's that sound? He's like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. Make it happen. I was like, holy shit. So I remember bringing everybody back to my house. There's like 10 of the sales reps. We brought all back. I did the Jerry Maguire thing. I was like, who's coming with me? I'm like, guys, this guy just like, nobody gets to start a company with an improving revenue stream, an existing client base and a product that everybody loves. Like nobody gets to start a company like that. Let's go. And there was only two guys that came with me and we ended up starting a separate company doing the same thing. Did, did you take the goldfish? No, no. I took the iPads and the iPods and all the other stuff though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I pillaged that entire office for whatever the hell was in there. All the, all the free giveaway shit that we had. Yep. All that was back going right in my backpack. Right on. I love your resourcefulness. And then quite frankly, just to make a long story short, then they, so we took over all the clients. It just didn't work out with my other two business partners. So I went off on my own about three years after that. And I've been off on my own for ever since working with the cool companies like Salesforce and everybody else. And I got a lot of people telling me, John, if you're going to do this, you really should brand yourself. And this was way before personal branding was really a thing because you know it as well as I do training in our world. It's 50% the content and 50% the person who delivers it. Like you could have the best content in the world, but if you've got a dud delivering it, it ain't going to land. And on the flip side, you could have a great presenter, but if you have crap content, it's not going to land. So they said, John, you really need to brand yourself. And as much as that, like it, it ate away at me because I was like, ugh, that's, it's not about me. It's about the company, you know, it's about the customer and it's, it's not about me. And they were like, just do it. And so kicking and screaming, I started jbarrows.com. So originally it was jbarrows with my big ugly mug on the website and all that other shit. And, and, and I realized that, you know, okay, I got to build my, now that my name's on the wall, this is, I have to, I have to do this my way. And, and people, you know, I, that, that was back where you could get like, you know, people were just at, Hey John, you know, give us a Twitter handle and we'll get you 10,000, 12 followers, Twitter, you know, Twitter followers. And then, you know, and at the end of the month and I'm like, the hell I want 10,000 random ass people following me on Twitter. I a hundred percent agree. It's a superpower, not only as an individual, but it's a superpower in sales authenticity. Right. And you know, the world has changed like from when I grew up and, and when you grew up, like even, you know, you talk about Atari, you talk about you never get a second chance to make a first impression. There, there was really never any CEO celebrities or icons previous to really Steve Jobs, right? And, 
and he changed the game. I mean, all of these, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates. Bill Gates was not even the loved, right? Like no, icon. He was a nerd. This is a nerd that was wicked, you know, that made a shitload of money, <laughs> that stole that stole a product and made some money on it. The game has changed. People not only want to know what they're buying, but who the company they're buying for yep. is, what do they stand for? What are their core values? What differences are they going to make? Are they long-term, sustainable, scalable? Are they one mm -hmm. and done? Because you can yep. buy and then the warranties, if they went out of business, so it really is a personal branding game now as much as professional. You know, I just had, I had Jeffrey Gittimer. He's a legend. <laughs> legend. I, talked to, I, I talked to him on a weekly basis. I give him shit all the time. He's a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and I'm a Boston fan, so we go head-to-head -head all the time. Come on. I'm a yeah. Steelers fan since ah, I was a little boy. Yeah, and uh, there you go. the standard is the standard as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Steel curtain. He actually, Jeffrey, we get along great. He just invited me to France, and uh, he, he's loving what I do. I'm putting out uh, the book, The Sales Machine, uh, How to Build and Scale Sales Teams to Millions, based on what I've done to recruit, train, retain, align, reward sales teams, tens of thousands of them. And uh, he's down. He, he said he'll write. Uh, I'm sending him a, a big-ass rhino. Yeah, nice. He wants to write the forward to my book. Yeah, no, he's great. He's uh, I went down to his house in South Carolina and uh, spent spent the weekend with him and his uh, ex wife. Now, unfortunately, or his third ex fourth ex wife, I think. <laughs> I don't know about all that, uh, he, but he did mention it. But he did a study, and he's part of an organization that did a study that over fifty five percent of professors in colleges teaching have never ever had a job oh yeah that doesn't surprise me so imagine someone who claims to be an expert educating people on how to do something that they've never ever done before i start sales training out really simple right like the the first thing i write on the board right is nobody cares every mm -hmm. sales training i start the first thing I heard, I just go to the front of the room and I put, nobody cares. Nobody cares about you, your product, your service. They care about their problem. They care about what's in it for them. They care about, can you make a difference? Is it sustainable, scalable? And I love mm -hmm. that you've sold and you incorporate that because, you know, a lot of people ask me what I do and I, yeah, I, I build sales systems to scale businesses, increase sales. Mm -hmm. But ultimately I'm, really a sales trainer one of the superpowers of sales is authenticity oh absolutely whatever i'm selling or whoever the potential client that we have in front of us they've got problems and those problems are like the missing pieces of the puzzle our real service to them is finding out what are those missing pieces of the puzzle so we can pop them in there yeah what was your biggest break then for taking on fortune 500 companies because i mean look you've worked with trillion dollar companies <laughs> yeah. amazon right yeah. what was your big break uh getting in those doors and how did you 
make that sense. We we got them by using our our training. I mean, like doing what we train, right? So like we had this one pro approach. It's called the why you why you now email back then, which is about doing research on an account and you know firing off an email to an executive, getting a referral down. And 15 years ago, if you did that right. Like I was getting emails back from Mark Hurd, Mark Benioff, like all these like crazy people that I would never, I, I you know, because then I like I, I was a mid market SMB guy, and then when I got to Basho, I had to sell to these huge companies, and I'm like, who the hell am I to reach out to Mark Benioff? Who the hell am I to reach out to Mark Hurd? But when I started doing it and being thoughtful with my approach and everything else, I was getting responses and it was, and then it just ran through the sales process and I would train their team. So it was like the best case scenario. I was using my own stuff to get the clients to then train them on my stuff. Right. And the big break, I think I, I wasn't the one who, um, who originally got the response uh, from Salesforce, but Salesforce was a Basho client, right? So we had got when, when I had worked for the company and then when they fired everybody, I remember me and the other two trainers, and this was back when, like this was back in 2008, okay? So Salesforce was Salesforce, but they weren't Salesforce. Correct. And we had some crazy logos for a small company. We had SAP, we had Gartner, we had Forrester, we had Salesforce. And I remember vividly, we, me and the other two trainers, trying to figure out who was gonna take what, right? What who's, who was gonna take what clients? And I, again, more of an opportunist, not the brightest kid, but I just knew Salesforce was a rocket ship. And I was like, and again, mind you, this is an economy where it was like tanking. You know what I mean? The housing market crashed and everything. Yeah. And I remember like I had trained SAP. I'd been on a training for SAP. So I was pretending to fight for those. I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I want SAP because I, I used to train there. And but one of the other, oh, no, that's my, that's my account. Right. And so I was like, yeah, hey, whatever. Give, I don't give a shit. I just wanted Salesforce. That's the only one I wanted. And so I negotiated pretending like I cared about all these other ones and I got Salesforce. I got a few others, but Salesforce was the one. And when I got them, I made the commitment to over service them because I wanted to make them my marquee client. And so I went overboard. I did stuff for them that I probably would never do for anybody else. I'd go to Singapore for a day. I'd go to India for a day to train their team. I would give them pricing that I probably wouldn't give anybody else. And I, I broke my back to service that account. There was only two outside vendors who trained Salesforce for 10 years, me and Sandler. And I would show them how to get the meetings and then Sandler would show them how to take it from there. And so I trained every single rep at Salesforce for the, for eight years, 2010 to 2018, give or take. And with that, I knew if I got Salesforce as a client that the rest of the SaaS industry would be like shooting fish in a barrel because they all wanted to be like Salesforce. And so once I had Salesforce and you'll appreciate this, you know, you know, the elevator pitch or, you know, whatever, when you're at an event and somebody's, Oh, what do you do? Right. Well, my elevator pitch was real simple. John, what do you, especially in the SaaS world, when I would go to an event, they'd be like, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I train Salesforce how to sell. And that was it. And now you'd get the, uh, what? Yeah, well, you know, I've trained about, you know, 5,000 of their sales reps on prospecting techniques and, you know, and Salesforce being the rocket ship that it was, like when people found out I was the guy that trained Salesforce, uh, yep, could you come and train us? 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 And it, like I said, it was shooting fish in a barrel and that really developed my rapport and my relation or my, my reputation. And from there, it, it just kind of took off. What's been the biggest challenge you, you've ever faced when you went in to actually implement your systems? Uh, management involvement, just like everything else, right? I mean, you know, there's the, the, the problem with training is a lot of people look at it as the check the box I've invested in my team, but nobody's willing to do the reinforcement that's necessary to make it actually work, right? 
And, and I think that's been my, in, in my frustration in general uh, about sales training. You know, when people ask, well, John, what's your reinforcement? What's your follow-up to your training? And I was like, my, my direct question to them is where are your managers? Where, where are your managers going to be during the training? Are they going to do the prep work with me? Are they going to learn how to coach towards this? Or are they going to be sitting in the back of the room, checking their iPhones and, you know, and, and not paying attention? Because if that's the case, I'll take your money, but you're going to throw it out the window, fire it up for a day or two. And then a month later, nobody's going to be doing shit different. That's my biggest is, is the clients that buy in and have managers. And like, I, I'm not a consultant. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and babysit your shit. I'm not going to do your job for you. I'm a trainer. I come in, I drop fire. I give you all the tools and the resources to be successful. And then it's up to you to implement it. I always say like, I'm kind of like the grandparents. I come in and I play with the kids and then I'm out. The managers are the parents. And if the managers aren't involved, then training is what it is. And so that's probably the biggest challenge is, is getting the buy-in from the managers who are always running around like maniacs, trying to deal clothes and everything else and getting them to stay focused on coaching, which is the number one thing managers should do, but it's the number one thing they don't have time to do, nor do they ever do, or are they coached on how to do. So therefore, I think that's probably the bigger, the, the, the kind of the macro challenge that I have or frustration I have with this industry. Honestly, I... I'm not really good at enterprise selling. I'm just not because, you know, there, there's a special type of person that can really navigate the political. Like I told you at Xerox, when I got, when we got bought by Staples, I didn't fit in the corporate world because of the bullshit, because of the red tape, because of the politics. I just, I'm just not that type of person. So me selling into enterprises Dealing with that bullshit and people in politics, like it just, it again makes my skin crawl. So what I decided to do, because Salesforce actually broke me from a strategic sales, enterprise sales standpoint. Because I did this, I did the typical thing that you should do in enterprise, right? You build your champions, you, you cross-sell, upsell, you get everybody's consensus, you align with this. But Salesforce was moving so fast while I was training them that I would go all in to develop a champion and get a buy-in. And, and then six months later, that, the guy would bounce. Because SAP recruited him. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so now, you know, all right, well, shit, that, and it's, you know, okay, shit. Well, that leader's gone. Okay, well, let me, let me do this again. Champion and this, uh, oh, bounce, next role. I'm like, fuck. And so I decided I was driving myself crazy trying to do the enterprise sale thing while being a player coach, while doing my own thing, while running my own company. And that's the difference, right? If I was an enterprise sales rep and Salesforce was my only account, I'd handle that no, no problem. But I was a business owner. I was a solopreneur at this point, running a business, trying to sell, trying to close, trying to manage, trying to do invoicing and everything else. So instead of burying myself trying to figure out enterprise selling at a company that was growing like a weed, I just decided to be really fucking good at what I did. And so I decided to just train better than anybody on the planet and force them to pay attention to me. And that's what I did. And so I was so good at training and the feedback was so good from the floor that the executives just kept buying. Yeah. It's been my experience, and I've got a really good friend named Brad Lee, and he says training is not something you did. It's something you do, right, uh, number one. And then for me, I expound on that, and it's been my experience working with companies that in actuality, if the management doesn't understand that training is something you do, not something you did, then whatever we do here – it's, it's, it's only going to be a spike for you because you've got to, you've got to train all the time. 
It's just like the NBA or the NFL. They, they train five days a week for one game. They train all the time. And once the trainer leaves, now what do you got? Are you guys going to train? That's why we built the sales machine. We automate systems and training, sales, marketing, accountability, retention, and training. And our accountability performance management brain that's patent pending, guess what? You set and forget, and you can forget because it's got rewards, recognition, competition, compensation. It's got coaching. So it notifies you when things aren't working before things break down, right? A lot of times, a lot of times companies find themselves in trouble or falling behind because they don't continue the training. And and it happens again and again and again. Or they think, okay, I'll, I would rather save some money here, right? So there's a couple different plays in that enterprise level decision, right? One is it becomes a race to the bottom and they start evaluating price. And that's a customer I don't want. Because I'm like, if you don't understand value, I'm out. I'll point you in a, in, a, in a direction because the only reason they're talking about price is because in the absence of value, not only that, their head is on the line. If we hire this guy, what's going to happen, right? And then when they look at the sales machine, it's scary, especially for sales leaders who don't do sales or revenue ops who don't do sales. They're, they're supposed to drive revenue, right? A lot of them don't. Right, they they're like the professor. They know they they know about it, but they really don't know it. Because for me, you don't know shit unless you can do it, demonstrate it, and then I have respect for you. But if you don't, if you're trying to teach me something and you cannot demonstrate it, you don't know it. You're just aware of it, but you don't know it. So a lot of these people in the corporate world are there to protect their job, right? And if they, and and it could go both ways, right? Because 67% of CRMs are not used by salespeople. They hate them. They're difficult to use. The one that you worked for, I know a guy who's done 200 integrations. He's like most complicated system in the world. John, your system is so simple. It's almost crazy stupid. And I'm like, that's, that's good. That's what I wanted. That's the point. Yeah. You can't overcomplicate it. A confused mind doesn't buy. A confused mind doesn't act. If you sign a contract with the enterprise level client and it doesn't work out or they cannot integrate, it's their ass. I tell, you know. If you do it sometimes, you'll have results. Sometimes. You got to do it all the time. I'd, so I'd start all my trainings with this, uh, and it, and it came from a training I did one time I was standing, you know, I was doing a keynote or something like a training and there was about 500 reps in the room. And at the end it was a Q and a, and one of the reps raised their hands and said, Hey, John, you know, all those logos that you have up there, right. All your customers, they're all, um, they're all our competitors for the most part. So if you're going to train all of us on the same content, like how are we going to differentiate? And my answer to him was 10, 60, 30. And he goes, what? I go 10, 60, 30. I go 10% of you in this room are going to take what I tell you and execute at the highest level because that's the type of people you are. I go 60% of you in this room are going to do something different because it's easy. It makes sense. And 30% of you in this room ain't going to do shit different. 
So the question isn't how many people can I train? The question is, is what percentage do you want to be in? And that's your choice, not mine. And that's the same thing with, with, with companies. I say the same thing, like, okay, I'll train you and I'll take your money. But if you're not going to, what's the, what's the reinforcement? How are you going to integrate this? What, where your manager is going to be those type of things I'll work. And I will work with you to the, to the nth degree, if you're committed, but if you're not committed, I will come in and I will do my show. And guess what? Those 10% are going to love it. The 60% are going to really like it. And you'll see a bump there and 30% ain't going to do shit different. And I will take your money and I'll feel good about it because I know I did my job. It's, it's so funny. You know, I never wanted to be in software. Ever, never even considered myself being in software, but I needed the automation because ultimately I was in the same situation. I, I had, I was working with 3000 different people. Some of them were selling skincare, Aqua Plus, our own brand. We own it. Uh, car care. Uh, we were doing advertising and promotions for Domino's Pizza, TGI Fridays, like guerrilla marketing. We, we were working with companies like ADT doing alarms. We were doing all these different products and services for people, but I just couldn't keep track and I couldn't automate it. Cause you know, I would go from one city to the next city, one country to the next country, but eventually things break down because training is something you do, not something you did, right? And so when we built the brain of the sales machine, the first thing we put in there was KPIs and goals. So people know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, so they'll do it. And, and with the training system incorporated in it. So it sends them notifications what to do. It sends their supervisor notifications or sales leader what to do. It sends everybody. So it's real time. And so when people are not confused or when you take away the fear and you implement training they still have to do the work but but where is the trainer when you leave how many trainers do you have in your organization right now that work with you uh none it's just me now it's yep. it's you right yep. so you you are very rare have you been involved in the recruiting training and the retaining of salespeople? because like you said at salesforce you build these champions and then they jump I have no interest in getting involved in the recruiting world. And the reason is, is because I've been burned way too many times on recommendations of people. I don't get involved enough in the company to understand the real aspects of the business and the real aspects of these individuals. And so I've made recommendations to companies that I thought were good before and the company was a disaster. And I've made recommendations of people before and they've ended up being a disaster because I get a very surface level understanding of who they are and what they do. So I avoid recruiting and recommending like the plague. Like people, people hit me all the time. Hey, John, do you know any yes? Nope, absolutely not. I, I will not put my name on somebody that I don't personally know and personally believe in. And so for me, I've just removed myself from that whole process because I just, it's just not, it's not something I want to get involved in. Yeah. I, well, yeah, everybody's got their own expertise, right? Yep. And I, I respect that, that you stay in your lane, right? That ain't mine. Yeah. Personally, I have not had the luxury of actually guide my people on how to recruit, train and retain, but ultimately the, at the highest level. Well, I know what's missing with a lot of organizations after COVID, it's not something that's new. It just brought it to the limelight, the great resignation, 
quiet and quitting. Uh, it really just showed up as the numbers that were reality, but magnified, right, about why com- people stay in a company, right? And, you know, because yeah. it, it, there's a lot of toxic environments out there. And what I believe and what I also know is if, if the environment's not right, people are going to leave. You know, I do give recommendations to people on how to get a job. But one of the things, especially as it relates to COVID is, and you kind of started with this, which is full, full circle here. People ask you, oh, John, I'm kind of, you know, I'm thinking about a new job, you know, what, you know, whatever. And I said, first of all, what's your plan, right? Because if you don't have a plan, you're just going to keep going around. I, I always tell people, if, like, I'll, I'll eat a shit sandwich if that shit sandwich is going to get me to that next point in my career that's going to get me to that next point that's going to help me achieve my goals, right? But if I don't have that plan, then I'm just going to look around for better taste and shit sandwiches, right? So that's one thing. But then, but even more importantly, in my opinion, is um, values. I, I, I had some, you know, back in 2021, uh, my dad passed away and it kind of put me in a weird spot. And, and I, I realized I was stuck in neutral, right? So I, I kind of had to reset on a lot of stuff. And so I went back and I got a business coach and, and I went through the, the why exercise, right? The Simon Sinek thing. And, but, but, and that was important, but a lot of kids don't know their why, and I'm not going to force that on them. But the core value piece to me, I think is the mo- one of the more critical exercises that anybody can go through. And I mean that, right? I mean, you, I don't know if you've been through it before, but you know, effectively you, there's like 50 values that are on a piece of paper and you kind of choose the ones that you like the most. And then you get down to 20 and then you get down to five and then you force rank those five of what's the most important, what's the least important. And once you have those values, like crystal clear of what your main core values are, the beauty of that is that becomes your decision matrix. Because now what you look for is people, people, companies, opportunities that share those values. Because I, I always say, if, if you and I share the same values, then we can argue all day long, but we'll come to a point of mutual respect and you know, might agree to disagree, but we'll, we'll work on something together. But if your and my values are off, like if your core values and my core values are off, we're just going to argue and we're going to tear each other apart. So if, as a sales rep or as, a, as, a, as a, an employer, right? if my employer or my manager doesn't share my values, it doesn't matter how good the job is. It doesn't matter how much money is. Eventually it's going to fall apart. Um, But if you have the core values, man, we can do some special things together. And so to me, that's why I think anybody right now who's kind of searching and trying to figure out whatever is get recentered on what those core values are and then go look for people, friends, family, opportunities, businesses, companies that share those, because I promise you, once you do, the, the conversation will just, it'll just flow, right? Like it, it, it won't be, it won't, I won't be trying to force it. It's just like selling, you know, passionate about what you sell and believing in what you sell. When you believe it, it just comes through naturally. When you don't believe it, you come through as a douchebag sales rep. So it's the same thing with values. If I, if your values are off and I'm trying to just get this job because it's a good job and it's money, but the values are off, it's going to be obvious in my interview that I'm not really on in line with this and I'm probably not going to get the job. Or if I do, I'm going to have a boss that hates me. But if the values are there, I promise you that conversation is going to be a lot easier. Man, you nailed it spot on. I work with a lot of CEOs even outside my organization, right? And uh, and small small businesses under ten million. And I, you know, I always start out with, you know, you've got to have structure, systems, and be strategic. Structure, systems, and strategy. And I went through that core value exercise. And when I talk to them about structure, they're like, what, is, what do you mean? And I'm like, you've, you've got to have your vision, your mission, your core values, 
your value proposition in order for you to even set a system to recruit those people. And that is really your, it, the structure of your business is not the building you, you're in or just the products you have. It's your vision, your mission, your core values, and your value proposition and what's in it for your people. Because if you don't take care of your people first, they're not gonna take care of your customers. Yeah. That's why people say the customer's always right. Bullshit. No, 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 no. Customer's not always right. It, your employees, if you don't treat your, your spot, like if you don't treat your employees right, then your customers are going to run away because they'll notice that, right? So it's, it starts with your employees and treating them right and have, making sure they have the right values. Yeah, and I don't even call them the E word. That's bad word in my organization. Uh, we, you're allowed to say entrepreneur within the organization, but nobody wants to be called that E world. E word. Everybody's a team member. And our, I love it that you said that because our core values are, I love it. Integrity, leadership, opportunity, or ownership, value, excellence, innovation, and teamwork. I love it. I walk in the, in the room and I say, uh, sales machine. And people will say, I love it. And I say, so do I, because without the same core values, Toxic people will blow your entire organization apart. It's happened to me, uh, and and it's happened to me recently that people will start questioning the integrity of the company when other people are just not in alignment. So you nailed it. What's next for you, JB? Like, obviously, uh, you're a gym, and, and people can get massive value out of work. Companies have already gotten massive value out of working with you. So what's next for you? Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting because last year was probably the hardest business year I've ever had in, in my career. Um, you know, I had a business that was up to 20 employees doing about five, six million revenue. And then, but you know, 95% of our clients were in SaaS. So beginning of the year, SaaS industry fell apart. Uh, so I had to restructure everything. I had split into the business in half, gave it to my other business partner. And so now I'm back on my own um with my with my coo so it's just us again and i'm taking a you know I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things so i got this membership that i do now that i do stand and deliver i do my trainings that anybody can join and i got the whole online catalog and do coaching i still do dedicated training for for bigger clients that i'm doing but you know really working on you know ai stuff trying to figure out the ai coaching model and what those tools are all about and trying to add value but i'm really launching this year what i'm calling um the jv sales learning lab which is effectively me learning out loud because I, I don't I don't think that there's things are moving so fast right now that there's not one single person that can stay up to date on all the different things that are going on. And I've gotten to a point in my career where I'm fortunate enough to have access to some pretty smart people. And to your point, you know, curiosity is probably one of my superpowers, right? Authenticity and curiosity are two of my superpowers. I'm not the brightest kid, but I'm definitely curious and I'm smart enough to ask the right type of questions and call bullshit on people. So effectively, I'm going to be acting as a proxy to the audience where I'm going to be bringing in other sales experts and tech experts and learning out loud and doing things like this and recording them and putting them on the system and getting people involved and just trying to figure this out as we go. Uh, because right now agility, if there's, if there's one thing that I think is probably um, the thing that most people should focus on is, is agility, right? Cause these days it's moving so fast that what worked six months ago is just not working right now. 
And if you're not, if you're stuck in your old ways, if you think that this AI stuff is just a trend, it's not. The AI is, I, I, I mean, you and I have seen some shit, right? Through our careers, we saw the internet, we saw high speed internet come, we, you know, dial up, we saw cell phones, we saw, you know, we saw all, we saw the iPhone, like, and these were all pretty significant kicks as far as evolution was concerned, but they were all gradual, right? They didn't, it wasn't this hockey stick, holy shit, what just happened. ChatGPT, when that got when when AI hit the mass market back in J January February this year, there's Pandora's box got opened up, and that sucker's not being closed, and it's coming for us. There is no question in my mind that AI is coming for us. Yeah, I've had a lot of um, people on the and, podcast, experts. Yeah, James Skinner from Japan. Yep. He's traveling with Robert Kiyosaki, expert. Uh, he did he did the first TEDx talk, uh, completely virtually. Had five hundred thousand views in August. He's a he's he's a badass, um, and a savage marketer. Jeff Hunter uh, flew in to Manila, did a big conference here, and built a university to learn AI for uh, digital marketers. And I had Ken Okazaki. Uh, he builds all the videos for the biggest names in the industry, like and the biggest name of marketing right now. He's he's the man behind that. He said, ultimately, if, if you don't get on board with AI, you're going to get left behind. But you've got to understand, AI is your biatch. And you can utilize it to, to grow and expand exponentially at light speed. And the people that don't are going to be – and my, my saying is always there's two types of companies, the quick and the dead. If you don't get on board – you're going to be in the graveyard. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not something that's a fad and, and anybody who thinks it is will one day wake up and lit. And, and when I say be replaced, I mean, literally be replaced. Your job will be over. So to me, it's, it's, you know, the, the, and this is what I'll leave um, with is the mentality these days. I think that sales reps or anybody has to have is, is think of Iron Man, right? So if you think of, of Tony Stark, right, as, as a human being, he's got it all, right? He's super rich. He's good looking. He's smart, right? He's got all the tools, right? But, uh, but, but Tony as a human, if he were to go out there and try to fight these aliens, he'd get killed, right? He'd get smoked. So what does he have to do? He has to create the suit. Well, the suit's cool. But if you remember the first Iron Man, it was like this big clunky thing that came out of the you know, cave and, and it crashed. And it, he really didn't become Iron Man until he added Jarvis. Right. So now you have the human, the suit, the tech and the AI and you got Iron Man now and you can go out and whoop some ass. So it's, it's not about automation. It's about augmentation. AI should be your co-pilot. It shouldn't be your replacement. And if you if you look to automate with AI, I think you're, you're running a fool's errand because eventually you're going to automate yourself out of a job and you're going to have to find something else to do. But if you can augment so that you are the last mile. So you let AI do all the heavy lifting, but then right before that email goes out, you humanize it. Right before that phone call gets made, you humanize it. If you can treat yourself as the last mile, but let AI do everything else, you can go out there and do some pretty special stuff. Yeah, and you can do it. And, and not only can you do it, it will do it in your voice once you train it. You got to train it with the prompts. Ladies and gentlemen, John Burroughs, you want to scale your business? You want to scale your sales? John Burroughs, look him up get it done much appreciated thank you for helping in all of the sales machines
That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining me today. And if you got value from this episode, do me a favor. Like, subscribe, and refer a friend. And if you want even more value, go to thesalesmachine.com, click on resources, and there's tons of resources there to increase profits and drive performance in your business. Right on, right on, come on.